My name is Kimberly Flowers and I'm the Director of Global Food Security here. Um, oftentimes through our work when we talk about food security, we always talk about this growing population or dwindling, dwindling natural resources or climate change impact or weak infrastructure. And those are important topics, um, but I think what we don't talk about often enough is is youth and the aging population of smallholders. Um, here in America, many of you may know that the, medium the median age of a farmer is 58 years old. In Sub-Saharan Africa, it's 60. And one of the challenges that we have is enticing young people to stay engaged in agriculture so that we can make sure to feed our future. The good news about this is when it comes to innovators and entrepreneurs and leaders, it's almost the reverse trend. It's definitely the young people who are taking risks, who are adopting technology, and who are finding new and exciting ways to build careers in agriculture. And we are so fortunate to have found five of the very best agriculture entrepreneurs in the world to come to spend a week with us to talk to policymakers and to think through how the U.S. government in particular can best engage youth um, through their foreign assistance programs. I'll be honest with you that we didn't intend for this program to be African-centric. What happened is when we did a global search, we found the very best, and they just happened to be from Africa. But we're proud of that, and we're very proud of the entrepreneurs that we have today. The Growing the Future Fellowship is a joint collaboration between my project, the CSIS Global Food Security Project, as well as the Youth Security and Prosperity Initiative, which is a joint collaboration between CSIS and the International Youth Foundation, which is run by Ritu Sharma who you'll meet later today. And the program and the reason we created this was when you look at, particularly Feed the Future, you see a lot of cross-cutting issues. You see gender, private sector engagement, climate change, research and development, but you don't see youth really as a cross-cutting theme. But yet we know how important youth are, particularly in adding voice um, to those programs and making sure that they're really leading forward um, for tomorrow's um, agricultural production. And so we wanted to bring over youth who are particularly engaged in Feed the Future in some way and have them to decide what are the recommendations? How could Feed the Future be better? Or how do we better engage youth and how we're teaching and reaching and, and broadening um, their leadership and capacity? So this week, we have had a fun but a packed week. Uh, I'll just give you an example of yesterday. Yesterday, we went through probably a, a record amount of security lines because we went to meet with members of Congress for breakfast. We had lunch with a huge group at USAID, and then we met with senior leaders at State Department and ended our day talking to key policymakers from USDA. Um, so these folks have, our fellows have been listened to, have been talking to some of the, the top leaders within the U.S. government about ways that Feed the Future has both changed themselves and their community in positive, positive ways, but also ways that things could be improved. Um, before we get started, I just want to say a couple of thanks. Uh, first and foremost to Ritu. Um, as a great colleague, but also a great collaborator and leader, um, it was very easy for us to come up with an idea for us to work together, and uh, I think we came up with a great program, and thank you for your vision, leadership, and, and I've learned a lot with you. Um, um, for doing this this week. Also like to thank um, Caitlin Almeyer in the back. This is one of Caitlin's last things to work on. She heads off to Tanzania in a week or two for a prestigious fellowship, but she's been with CSIS for several years and with me since the beginning and has been um, an invaluable uh, part of our team. I'd also like to thank Katie Boots, 
can raise your hand, Katie. Katie's been a, an outside consultant who's helped us with everything from selection to logistics to, as she called herself, the human Siri of helping our, our fellows uh, adjust and adapt to this week and be there all, all across the board, and that's been fantastic. Um, a brief word about security, not that I expect any concerns um, or things to happen during our event, but in, in, in the event that anything does happen, know that I'm your security officers and we'd exit out either of these doors if that happens. So to kick off our program, we have a welcome video from someone who's often referred to as the father of the Green Revolution, um, thanks to um, Ambassador Islam Siddiqui, who's one of our senior advisors in the front. If you don't know him, he's fantastic. He helped us secure this video. And Emma Swaminathan, as he's known for his pioneering work in partnership with the, dark, with the um, late Dr. Norman Borlaug, and they're credited to have saved millions of lives from hunger and malnutrition in Asia and elsewhere. Um, Emma Swaminathan is a former World Food, Prizer, World Food Prize winner, a wise agricultural leader, and he's been a good friend to CSIS. So we will we'll start off our event with words from him. Fiber and all other products. As our panel, the first panel comes up, um, I'll just mention, I mean, what, I mean, what a great way to say transforming change in agents. That's exactly the word that I would describe for the fellows that we have with us this week. Uh, we also have a few key experts <coughs> who are going to help us on our panel today, and one of those is Trent McKnight, to my, to my right. And 
you have everyone's bio, so I don't like to give long introductions, but what I like about Trent is his own social entrepreneurism and that he founded a, a great organization called AgriCorps, which is kind of like Peace Corps, but for a year taking American um, students who are engaged in agriculture over to developing countries. Um, he also has a long history as a farmer himself. Oh, there I just came on. Good thing I had a loud voice earlier, huh? All right, can you hear me now? <laughs> um, I don't need to repeat all that, right? I'm sure you heard me, good. Um, so Trent is also a farmer himself, as a cattle rancher in Texas. Um, he also um, has a long history with 4-H and, and other ways of engaging youth. And so I thought he would be the perfect person to help us sort of set the stage. And so to start us off, Trent, uh, talk to us about why are youth critical when it comes to agricultural development both in the U.S. and abroad and how does that connect to sort of the economy and and political stability and, and just the history of ag? Thank you Kimberly and thank you for the opportunity to, to be here. Uh, we figured out in the United States about a hundred years ago that youth were critical to transforming the agricultural industry and not just in investing in a future uh, and for helping kids because we like kids, but because they were transformation agents. Uh, so a, a little, I guess, kind of before I, I go into some of the international stuff, uh, a little bit of a background history of agricultural education in the United States, which really began with <clears throat> uh, President Lincoln signing the Morrill Land Grant Act of 1862 and creating land-grant universities. Uh, which were institutions to teach the common man agriculture and to develop research and new knowledge. These are institutions such as Texas A&M University, Cornell, uh, University of Florida, uh, UC Davis, Kansas State. Uh, these universities, each state has a land-grant school that is the center for agricultural research in that particular state. And then a few years later, they decided that they needed to <clears throat> expand research and so they developed more research uh, stations around the state that were connected to the university but they still weren't really reaching the farmer so around the turn of the century a cooperative extension service was created to extend the knowledge that was being created at these universities at these land-grant universities and extend that knowledge to farmers so each county in the united states had an extension agent and they were actually extending that knowledge and that research to the farmers but again they were reaching a problem because the extension agent looked something like me, uh, and the farmer was uh, an old guy uh, and wanted to know who in the heck are you coming to tell me how to farm. If this was good enough for my daddy, then it's good enough for me. So farmers, and, and I've realized this, the farmers, whether they're in West Africa or West Texas, they're all stubborn. Uh, they don't want to change. They're opposed to change. Uh, and that was the case 100 years ago as well. And as one county extension agent said in Jack County, Texas, if you can't teach an old dog new tricks, next year I'll start with the pups. And corn clubs and tomato clubs uh, began to form, and later those became 4-H and the Future Farmers of America. And the idea of the corn club was to take, and they were all young men at the time, uh, was to take young men and teach them uh, a new techniques 
and new technologies in specifically corn farming. So uh, they would introduce hybrid seeds to, uh, to these boys who were members of corn clubs. And they would go home to their father's farm, who maybe had 80 acres or 160 acres, or maybe uh, he had you know, a full half section of, of, of land, 320. And they would take one acre, and they would use that new hybrid corn seed with uh, improved methodologies and technologies with, on their father's farm. And the father would then see the, the next year, because the father was opposed to, to buying hybrid seed if he had uh, seed corn that he had kept from the previous year's harvest. Why does he need to, to purchase new seed? And the next year he would see the, uh, the fruit, literally, of his son's labor when his son's corn was two feet taller than his and had an improved yield. And he wanted to know how he could get his hands on that seed. So youth were used as, transfer, as transformation agents for agriculture in this country. And that was what uh, really created the agriculture revolution and science re revolution in this country uh, that we continue with organizations such as 4-H and Future Farmers Today. And it's transferable to other countries uh, and has been uh, around the world. And we'll love to talk about that later. Great, thank you. Nora, so Nora comes from Kenya, and Nora's a, I like to say ag nerd, that's what I call those that are researchers, I mean that as a compliment, of course, but Nora is a, is a very intelligent ag researcher who spends a lot of her time mentoring young women and, and helping them understand why agriculture can be a viable career path. So Nora, I'd like for you to talk to us a little bit about why you got into agriculture and what do you say when you mentor young people of, of how, why it's important, how it's not a dirty job, you know, what they could do um, to make agriculture exciting as a career. Thank you very much. Um, when I, uh, from where I grew up, my mother was a farmer, and uh, she'd take us to go and farm, and would also till other people's lands for us to get money. And uh, back then, we live and till other people's land, and my mother would promise us that you're going to get shoes to go to school. And uh, it, was, it was not very interesting because um, it was very labor-intensive. And then, the, secondly, I'm a girl, I'm a young girl, I need to look good, but then my nails look very bad, <laughs> you know? Um, so I didn't really have a liking towards agriculture. But then I have seen my mother really struggle, and uh, so uh, there was this program after apl applying for, after finishing my secondary education. And so I decided to go to the city. And my brother, my brother then was doing agriculture. Uh, he was doing computer engineering. So I went to the city and um, I met somebody. Then this person told me, um, what courses would you like to take? And what I said is, I want to do computer science, like my brother. But then, uh, having conversations with that person, he told me, then, uh, you can 
you can change. You can change uh, what, your, what your mother has undergone. You can change that. So why don't you think uh, a course in agriculture, a course in nutrition, a course in food science? So he gave me all those options and I decided to go for food science and technology. So after I finished, I remember the first time uh, there were these entrepreneurs who came to our university. And what I was doing uh, was in my project, my research project was enriching finger millet with whey proteins. Because that was what my mother was growing and every morning was just porridge, taking porridge to school. So one of the projects I did was enriching uh, finger millet with whey protein so at least we can have proteins, in, incorporate proteins in the diet. And I remember this person saw that in me and he told me, can you write a proposal for juice production? I said, oh yes. So I wrote my proposal on establishing a factory and then handed it over to him. Before I even finished my university education, no, no graduated, he told me then, um, I want you to come and start up something in South Sudan. And so I had to pack my bags and go in South Sudan. And I established that uh, factory. Of course, it was uh, very hard, because um, one of the things was what we are taught in school is actually not what is happening. Because I remember I kept on calling my university professor. Thank God he was very, very available for me. He taught me a class in fruits and vegetables. And uh, one of the things was we, we made the juice. It was in the market. But the owner called me and told me, hey, your juice are discoloring. I was like, what? They've lost all the color. And uh, so I was just wondering, what, what, what is the problem? What did I do wrong? And then he told me, uh, why don't you do some microbial analysis, check uh, maybe there's some, something you did not control. So it was on and off, on and off. And then we realized that the sugar we were importing was not a very good one. So we had to do more of pasteurization. So it was a lot of learning experience. And uh, due to conflict in South Sudan, I had to come back to Kenya. But I really wanted to continue with what I was doing because I had been in it. Agriculture is profitable. Then I joined uh, this program. It's a mentoring program where we encourage, uh, where women are mentored to undertake agricultural research. And then I did my master's. But then I realized during the, uh, there's a lot of discontinuance whereby, yes, you start with agriculture, then it reaches a point, and then you just don't want to continue anymore. So these are some of the skills we are trying to give young people that agriculture, it's broad. You can choose careers all the way from production, it could be agribusiness, it could be food processing, it could be biotechnology, it could be plant breeding, and all this you can actually jointly develop solutions for the problems that you're facing. So this was, has been the motivation for me to be in agriculture and to also encourage other young people that you can actually make a difference in your community when you're in agriculture. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nora. Patrick, you know, we've talked a lot this week about 
What makes you all so special? I mean, you are a social entrepreneur and you're pursuing your career in, in sustainable development and food systems. You've won so many awards and fellowships for the kinds of ways that you've created programs to engage youth. What makes you different? What makes you a social entrepreneur? Mm, thank you, Kimberly. Um, I think uh, what makes me love what I'm doing is uh, it's simply because uh, I feel like uh, I want to become an inspiration for young people who are in agriculture today. Uh, uh, every time when when I wake up, I'm like, uh, today I want to do something so that uh, my brothers and sisters who are doing agriculture will be saying that, wow, if Patrick can do this, me too, I can do that. So uh, it all started in 2013 uh, when, when I was at the university. Uh, I, I was doing uh, agriculture, but with uh, majoring in animal production. and. Uh, one day I was in class, we, we were a, in a class of 15 people, and I, and I was like, why, why are we few in, in our class? Why are other young people not want to join us in the class uh, and doing agriculture as we are doing it? And I started uh, asking my friends uh, who were doing other courses, engineering and uh, uh, medicine, and then uh, I found that at the end of the day that most of them uh, have a mindset or perception, uh, a, a bad image of agriculture saying that uh, agriculture is disgusting, uh, you can make money in agriculture. And then this, uh, this grew my, uh, my passion of saying that maybe I'm going to, to push and uh, do something uh, extra, I can say, uh, so that uh, other young people will see me in uh, agriculture, pursuing my career, a good career in agriculture, and they will be saying that, oh, so we were wrong in uh, saying uh, that you can have a fruitful and productive career in agriculture. So I was fortunate. Uh, I started gaining an exposure. Uh, thanks. I, I always say thanks to USAID and the Feed the Future program because uh, I've gained and my first international exposure because of USAID and Feed the Future program. And I believe, uh, I can't say what makes me special is like I've got opportunities and uh, that I think other young people are doing agriculture uh, are not getting now. So, and this makes me feel like uh, we need to do more for young people who are doing agriculture. Because uh, in Africa, it's, it's really different, like here in USA or British, where, where I'm studying now, because you meet a, a young man or a young woman who are 25 and, and he's owning a farm, he's proud, and mo most of them has got like uh, some name tag saying that uh, catering a farmer. This is something that you can see back home because most of young people are in agriculture now have started saying that maybe we should change our career because there are no opportunities. And uh, I do believe that if we can create opportunities for young people who are in agriculture today, 
uh, especially in continents like Africa or Asia, I do believe all of them will become special, as you said, like me. <laughs> you are very special. You all are. <laughs> it's very clear. Um, let's go back to Trent for a minute. Um, talk to me. You've had a lot of experience, I mean, beyond your unique experience um, of understanding how youth are engaged in the U.S., but also abroad, right? And so um, your own experiences abroad or why you've chosen to create a foundation, or not a foundation, but create a program that you're taking um, young leaders abroad. And so what do you see when you're overseas? Why have you chosen to, to broaden your own career into more of a global landscape? So first, let me give a little background on AgriCorps. Uh, we are a Peace Corps type organization that takes American, young American agriculture professionals, uh, young people with a college degree in agriculture, 4-H, FFA experience, production agriculture experience, to be agriculture teachers in developing countries, uh, supporting local agricultural education organizations, uh, whether those are Future Farmer, 4-H, Young Farmer, uh, whatever the local organization is, we are there to kind of support them in their capacity building. And <clears throat> uh, there are 4-H, there are 75 4-H programs, uh, or 4-H programs in 75 countries around the world. There are around 25 future farmer programs around the world and uh, countless other young farmer type of, of programs. And uh, about two years ago, I attended the Global 4-H Summit in Seoul, Korea. Uh, it was the very first time that they gathered all of the various 4-H organizations together. And it was fascinating to be able to see and hear uh, about agricultural education and 4-H programs in, from a different cross-cultural uh, perspective. Uh, one of the speakers was a, uh, uh, the founder and owner of a multinational uh, meat processing, chicken poultry processing company. They actually just bought uh, two years ago companies in Delaware, so and he's based in Korea. Uh, but his very first uh, project in agriculture was a 4-H project uh, in when he was nine years old, and it was a chicken project, and he now has a multinational uh, poultry processing company. And he said that it was the 4-H and future farmer movement in Korea that led Korea from being a beneficiary of aid to being a benefactor of aid. Following his remarks, uh, President Park, <clears throat> the head of state for South Korea, spoke and said that it was these movements of agricultural education that developed South Korea to becoming the modern economy and democracy that it is today. Fairly bold statements coming from a head of state. And it was fascinating to be able to see this from a different perspective. And I guess this is what AgriCorps is trying to do in the countries where we're working in. Right now we are in uh, Ghana and we are entering Liberia uh, for, for this next year to transform agriculture, uh, to use the agricultural education model that uh, has been proven in the United States, in Korea, in other Asian countries, in other African countries, in other European countries, uh, to transform young lives, but also farmers' lives at, at the same time. Uh, one little anecdote of 
uh, you know, we, we've talked about uh, how do we engage young people in agriculture whenever they don't see, you know, it as a fruitful future. Uh, and one of our, our goals is really to, to shift the paradigm of young people from farmer equals peasant to farmer equals business person. Uh, and the way that you do that, the way that you make farming sexy is you show them you can make money in it. Money is sexy. Uh, poverty is not. And so, so if, you can, if you can show someone that they can make money in agriculture, uh, then all of a sudden it becomes interesting. Uh, and we have a, a fellow who's in a, a very rural school in northern Ghana. Uh, she is uh, from uh, Tennessee, uh, grew up on a, on a farm, and now she's working in, in this very rural community, a very impoverished community in, in, in northern Ghana. And I went to, to visit a couple of months ago, and the headmaster came out and said, we've been so excited to have Kelsey here in our school. So our, our students just took, and she's been teaching at a, at a junior high school, so our students just took their, their high school entrance exams, and 40% of them said that they wanted to study agriculture in high school. I said, that's great. How many said they wanted to study agriculture last year? He said, zero. And it was simply because someone was there and showed them that agriculture is a noble profession and that you can make money in it. Patrick, I want to go to you next. You know, as, as, as you hear Trent talk about how youth can transform agriculture, let's, let's talk about Feed the Future a little bit. You know, you mentioned that, you know, it's thanks to USAID and Feed the Future that's helped you get where you are today. So talk to us a little bit about specifically Feed the Future programs in the sense of what progress, what change you've seen in yourself, your community, your country, whichever, but also what are some ways that um, it can engage youth more? Okay, thank you very much, Kimberly. Um, I think in, in 2014, uh, I was selected uh, by the International Youth Foundation uh, to carry on, on a fellowship program in Kampala, Uganda, uh, alongside with other 24 young people from Africa. And uh, that it was a, a USAID-funded program and uh, it really helped me a lot in terms of developing uh, my leadership skills. Because uh, at that stage, I was in my third year at the university. I was always struggling on how, I was thinking about how can we as young people make uh, agriculture fun and use agriculture as a tool to create like community sustainable solutions. Uh, and. Uh, that fellowship program shaped, uh, I can say, my passion and uh, my idea towards doing something in agriculture for young people, but also for our communities. And uh, I think uh, USAID programs and Feed the Future programs uh, really helped me in, uh, a lot in terms of uh, designing and shaping my career, <coughs> but also I do believe that they did help uh, other young people through trainings they, they are carrying out uh, in our countries uh, or in USAID and for the future country of focus. But I think uh, there are still some improvements. For instance, on my case, yes, I did some trainings for them, but there was no follow-up, I can say. Yes, it's, it's good to train uh, a young people, but I think if, if you can train a young people and then 
follow up to see if he or she has implemented what he has been uh, learning during those trainings. I think this could have a big impact in the future. And uh, I, I think it, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have to be a, like a, a very big follow-up uh, system or whatever. It, it can be just maybe one visit to see how uh, that uh, young man is performing on the field. Or it can also be by using social media because today we have uh, mobile phones, we have uh, Facebook. Uh, it can be just to create a platform for those young people who have been trained and then maybe that maybe use that platform just for sharing experiences. Because young people in agriculture, we do face a lot of challenges. Like, first of all, uh, it's really hard to get uh, like an impact in a short period of time when you are in agriculture. And uh, most of the time you get discouraged, you say like, yes, I've been, I've been uh, getting some trainings, but things are not working. And then you feel like you want to quit or, yeah. So that's uh, like uh, one of my recommendations that I can give to USAID and future program, just to create a follow-up system for those trainings. Very important. Nor, what do you have to add to what, to what Patrick is saying um, in regards to what are some ways that the US government could better reach out and engage young people, or what would you change? Thank you very much. I've been involved in this program, the mentorship program. And mentoring is a very, very powerful tool in terms of uh, spanning up uh, careers for young women and the young people in agriculture. And I think it's very good to have such programs which are structured, like very, very structured in a way. And uh, I don't know if, Trent, what you've talked about, agriculture education, like you factor in the mentoring uh, programs. Because what, uh, what I have seen work for me, especially in mentoring, is you, you come up with a purpose roadmap. And I think uh, most of us, when we are starting up uh, our careers or our business, we don't have that. That what is it that I'm working towards? This is my purpose. This is my purpose in life. At the end of it all, what do I want to see? I want to see uh, increased income. I want to see more food on the table. So you set up a specific purpose. And you, then you have what goals, what skills do I need? What experience do I need for me to achieve this overall purpose that I have set? And I think the program, um, through this program, which is funded by USID, the mentorship program, I've been able to do that, that is to set up a purpose. And my purpose is to influence policies in food and nutrition security. And I think this has been one of the major steps to have conversations with uh, policymakers and uh, come up with the, the re some of the recommendations. And I would like that the U.S. programs could now scale up these kind of programs, this mentorship structured 
formal uh, mentorship programs, even in agribusiness. So that when we are having uh, youth entrepreneurs, youth in, in agribusiness, then there's somebody, there's a mentor, somebody who walks with you in that particular journey. For example, if there are different innovations, there's uh, ICE, uh, involvement of uh, information and communication technologies, then if you're carrying out these agriculture education programs, do we have that specific person that can actually work with this young innovator and uh, set out steps, come up with the possible solutions, or even say, here you're doing it wrong, I think you can do it better this way. And um, not only in the areas of innovation, even in terms of research, I think we need programs that uh, would encourage more young people to incorporate ICTs, that is information technologies, into agriculture so that it's very, very fashionable, it's very exciting, it's very interesting for the young people. So these mentorship programs should scale up and for, for, for young people to, to be engaged also in agribusiness. Thank you. Yeah, May I follow up on sure. uh, <clears throat> two things? Uh, first, uh, on Feed the Future, uh, youth should not be a cross-cutting issue. It should be a separate silo category in and of itself. Uh, youth is a cross-cutting issue in agriculture in the United States, never worked. Every commodity group in this country has tried to start a youth program, whether it was wheat growers, the Angus Association, or American Farm Bureau, and it never worked because it was never a solid focus. It was never their focus. The two organizations that, are, that have made youth their focus, 4-H and the Future Farmers of America, and 4-H uh, and Youth Extension, and Agriculture Education being Future Farmers of America, both dedicated the entirety of their organization and focus on youth, and that's what made them successful. Anytime that youth was simply a cross-cutting issue, it was always put off to the side and, oh, by the way, we ought to organize a little thing, a camp for the youth, and we'll talk about agriculture, and there, were ne there was never any impact. Second, on, on uh, your kind of questions and comments about agricultural education, so the agricultural education model uh, involves three components. Uh, it's a school-based agricultural education model. Uh, the first is classroom instruction. So it's what the students learn in classroom, uh, agricultural science, agricultural business, agricultural communications, everything they learn within that classroom. That also in includes laboratory instruction, uh, which might be a school garden or a school farm, hands-on application, but it's everything they would learn during the school hour. The second component uh, is leadership development. So you have all these students uh, gathered around agriculture, planning to go into agriculture. Uh, they've got a school, farm, or garden. Allow them to organize themselves and determine what they'll do with the produce of that school, garden, or, far or, or, or farm, rather than the agriculture teacher or advisor saying, all right, we're going to do this and give, it to, uh, give all the produce to the teachers. Well, the students or the, or the laborers allow them to, to organize and decide. So there's leadership development. And then the third piece, to your point, is a supervised home entrepreneurship project where the students take what they have learned in the classroom and they go home. I was talking about the corn clubs earlier where uh, the, those young boys 100 years ago would go home and plant that hybrid corn with, 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 their, uh, with their parents. Well, the same thing is true 
still today is they may have chickens or they may have tomatoes or a garden that they take home uh, and have that project at home, but it's also supervised by the agriculture teacher or by the extension agent so that they come by regularly to check up on to offer advice and supervision so that they do know if they're doing something right or wrong and they can make those improvements. Um, let's do a one round of questions from the audience. Um, so if you have a question, please raise your hand. We have some folks in the back that will bring around microphones. Do we have any questions, comments, thoughts, jokes, anything? And please introduce yourself. Thank you. Hi, my name is Michelle McKenzie, and I work with the U.S. African Development Foundation. And I, this is, I am the choir. I'm a very big believer in integrating youth into agriculture and the benefits that can come from that. Having been a Peace Corps volunteer in Niger and working with youth, just knowing how malleable they are and how much more willing they are to adapt new technologies and just to engage and even more importantly, to be advocates. And that's where that third component comes from, taking the school learning and taking it home and showing the results that can then create that buy-in. So we have, we're funding um, a 4-H project in Liberia, actually. And I do believe they have an MOU with AgriCorps for technical assistance. That's correct. <laughs> so you guys provide the technical assistance and we round up the rest. And this project is, it's really interesting because it was funded right at the time that Ebola started. And so for a whole year, the project was sidelined because we couldn't do anything. And so now everything is being ramped up again. They had the trainings for the persons who were supposed to be the, the, the teachers for to start. We're starting 71 programs in I think six counties in Liberia. And just as the pictures come in, seeing just the passion and the glee on the faces of the students and they made us a video that they sent to us and you're like you can't buy this stuff <laughs> and you certainly can't instigate the same type of passion and energy from adults and it's so true what you said about well if you can't teach an old dog new tricks let's teach it to the pups and I really do believe that that is one of the main ways forward and in terms of how to integrate youth into agriculture it's definitely through programs like these and changing that mindset, that paradigm shift in how agriculture is viewed. I know that the one campaign had sort of a splashy, sexy campaign that they launched a few years ago where they had sort of um, African celebrities to do this ad to sort of reach out to young people to say, look, agriculture is cool and it's something that you can definitely make your way forward in as a viable sort of economic activity. And that's definitely the way that we should be going. And I so agree with you about it not being a cross-cutting issue. It has to be its own silo that gets specific and dedicated sort of action and interest. Otherwise, it can just get swept to the side. And on the issue of follow-up, so, so, so important. So many people assume that because you've trained someone once, that's enough. Training is an iterative process. You have to do it over and over. So to the extent, well, maybe it's just a one-time follow-up to see that implementation is happening. So the idea of 
having a metric where you say, well, number of people trained. What does that mean? They were trained, but did they even show up for the training or for the food? And so <laughs> what did they do with the training afterwards? How are they implementing it? How are they progressing? What are the results? Just my comments. Thanks. Thank you so much. Let's take two more. One over here, one here, and then this, and then unfortunately that'll be it because we have to go quick, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. Please introduce yourself as well. Uh, my name is Cody Etlin. I work for a consulting company here in Washington, D.C. And I'm curious, uh, what role do you see transportation having in bridging the gap? Because I know that improving the yield is important and attracting youth is as well, but no, knowing the current you know, lack of infrastructure in many, uh, many countries in the emerging world, what, like, what role could transportation have in, I guess, you know, taking the crops to the market and in supporting the agribusiness, which would make you know, agriculture more appealing to youth? Let's take the other questions, the other two questions, and then we'll go around. Yeah, go ahead. Um, hello, good morning. My name is Sydney Franklin. I am an intern at Reliance Incorporated here in DC. We work to combat um, human trafficking in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, but I'm also born and raised in Texas. Um, and so I was wondering what sort of um, agency and or role do you see young adults playing in this? Um, not necessarily from the um, age of uh, students still in grade school, but young adults for us that are in college and or business majors, um, specifically business human resources individuals who don't yet know what they um, know what they want to do. What sort of role do you see um, young adults playing in either here in America and or in Africa or developing countries as well? I think we have one more question in the front. Yeah. Hello, my name is Dorothy Taft, and I uh, work with the Market Project, and we create trauma-informed market-based businesses to offer employment to men and women who've come out of trauma, exploitation, and human trafficking. Uh, we, uh, one of our businesses is in northern Uganda, and it's a value-added food uh, production business. And one of the things that has, I've been curious about is it appears that, um, particularly in Uganda, there doesn't seem to be uh, as much encouragement for value-added uh, production for food. You go to the farmer's market and it's just all the tomatoes all come on the market at the same time. Um, and there's very little of that next step. And we are uh, trying to take an, a different approach uh, to create a more viable business model. What suggestions do you have with respect to policy changes that need to take place um, either in your own countries, I'm particularly interested in Uganda and Rwanda, um, that uh, would help that value-added production for, for one reason that it also adds your, to your profit line? Thank you. You're going to really enjoy meeting James later. <laughs> James is from Uganda who works, has his own value-added company that he runs. So, um, so let's do this to wrap up. Um, I'm going to ask each of you, we'll just go down the line, um, to answer back to any comments that you have of some of the questions, as well as any other final quick comments or thoughts that you have. We'll start with Trent. Uh I think one of the major uh, things that to support value-added agriculture is going back to this young man's question about logistics. 
uh, if there are not good roads and tomatoes are stuck on a, on, on a truck and rot, then a tomato paste factory processing plant uh, in the capital city can't be dependent upon local tomatoes uh, to add value in, to make tomato paste. So, uh, and, and I did uh, a food security research study in Liberia and the hunger season is in August, which is during the rainy season. And it's for two, and it's for two reasons that it's at that particular point. One is because uh, I, uh, their, their local food stocks have run out, but second is because the roads are so bad during the rainy season that no food can come in. Uh, so logistics are extremely important both uh, for hunger alleviation but also for value-added agriculture and taking the next step as an economy. And as far as how you can get involved, Sydney, uh, uh, we would love to have you as part of AgriCorps. Uh, and I think that, <clears throat> that there are lots of organizations here uh, volunteering for a 4-H club and being a, a, a youth leader and mentor in 4-H in the United States. Uh, uh, being part of, there's an organization called uh, uh, Farm Corps. Uh, it's doing uh, work in, in, in urban agriculture uh, and in, on the international scene, uh, getting involved with AgriCorps, and uh, whether as a as a as a fellow or as an advocate who's uh, supporting us here on the ground and, and helping us uh, find other support to support programs uh, globally. Nora. I love to respond just also to the two questions. One of the research areas that I focused in was reducing post-harvest losses of uh, fruit along the fruit value chains. And uh, apparently I did this in Kenya, so I don't know if it's going to reflect uh, for Uganda, but I'll speak for Kenya. And um, like we have 45% losses before it even reaches the market. And it's because of transportation issues. So I think that that is one of the areas we could probably address. Then even our farmers uh, lack the knowledge on how to value add. And then also in terms of market, we, we don't have the necessary market. And especially the, the, the reason is because the, the middleman, the person who facilitates from harvesting for you to get your products from harvesting to the seller, they actually tell you, okay, ma'am, please harvest. I am going to, I'm going to come with a lorry, and then you harvest, and then he doesn't come, because all of you have grown mangoes, all of you. So there's mango on this farm, there's mango on the next farm, and everybody has just harvest. There's a lot, and if he doesn't come to pick, then he just picked to your next door neighbor because he, your next door neighbor has also harvested. And I think one of the policy recommendations, uh, as you have said, is to find innovative ways of, because the hunger gap, uh, the, the hunger month, for example, you'll find it's in August. Most of us are now food insecure. Why can't we find modalities then uh, to plant our fruits such a, in a way that we can harvest them in August? so that in August there's plenty of mangoes, then in uh, July there'll be plenty of mangoes, rather than all of us having mangoes at the same time. So this has been uh, one of the challenges. And then I think the other challenge is on trade policy. 
uh, especially on the export market. What you find, uh, we have had a menace of what you call the fruit fly disease, and we cannot export. Whether as a value-added product, whether as the mangoes themselves. So what do we do? <laughs> yeah, so um, I think the trade policies also uh, need to be uh, a bit flexible. And uh, like we cannot export to the US because of the issue of the fruit fly. Yeah, so that has been a greater, uh, a very great challenge. And then you just have, we have all heaped up. So I think we need to give lots of trainings on value addition because I know we can make, we can dry the mangoes, we can make pulp, and also just educate um, uh, the consumers themselves within ourselves that actually you can eat dried mangoes. And you find that uh, most, uh, because I also worked in South Sudan, it was very hard to convince the people there that you can buy mango juice. They say, I mean, why should I buy mango juice while I can eat the mangoes? Yeah, so uh, there's also a lot of uh, education that needs also to go to the consumers. So there's a whole mix of uh, issues that needs to be addressed. Thank you. Okay, um, just adding something on the question of value addition. Uh, personally, I, I don't believe there is no, uh, not a, a not a, an encouragement for value-added production, but I think it, it, it's, a, it's a problem of uh, logistics, let's say materials for, and also, uh, yes, materials and uh, facilities in general. And I do believe, uh, if we can get a policy that can facilitate innovation and value addition, uh, especially also targeting young people, because most of the time when I speak, uh, I, when I think about Africa, I think about young people, because young people are on a high uh, percentage in Africa. And I, I do believe that if you can get a policy that can facilitate innovation, uh, from young people in terms of agriculture uh, commodities, uh, adding value to agricultural commodities. I think that would help. Uh, I, I have an example of a friend of mine in, in, in my classroom uh, during our undergraduate uh, years. He went out and then started uh, adding value to orange sweet potatoes. Uh, you know that uh, most of the programs are using orange sweet potatoes uh, because they're highly nutritious. And now he's, uh, he's trying to process orange sweet potatoes and then make crisps, make uh, some uh, bee sweets. And, uh, and when, when I see that example, I think if we can invest in uh, just facilitating uh, innovations from young people, we can create a solution to that problem of uh, post-harvest loss. Because if you add value to an agricultural commodity, it will also help in terms of storage. And if we can manage to store in a long period of time, we also eliminate the problem of post-harvest loss. Thank you. Yes, sure, go ahead, Noor. Um, um, I think there was a question about how the young adults, yeah, can be involved in, in agriculture. Um, my thoughts are, um, 
many of us are interested in information and communication technologies. I think that is where we can really tap most of uh, the young people's attention. I've been very excited about uh, a technology here in California. <laughs> okay, not here, but in the US, in California. <laughs> uh, about a robot that uh, has been developed that you can, it, it identifies a weed and then it approves the weed. I mean, that is so fascinating. And I think uh, those are some of the engagement that we can have the youth in our in information and communication technologies. And I think even when it comes to new emerging technologies, uh, like uh, from our introductory speech by Professor Swaminathan, uh, one of the areas is, very upcoming areas is nanotechnology. But I think uh, it's exciting for the youth to take up uh, such, uh, and uh, nanotechnology can be applied across all the areas in food technology and uh, in um, uh, what I know is in chemistry, in food processing. And uh, there's one encouraging fact when I visited South Africa that there's actually a course on nanotechnology and it's free. So it's really trying to encourage the youth to. Uh, get involved in it and figure out how can you apply such, such a technology in your respective uh, fields. Thank you. Let's give a huge round of applause for our first panel. <laughs> and now our second panel will come up that will cover some other issues. Good morning. I'm Ritu Sharma. I run, as Kimberly said, the Youth Prosperity and Security Program here at CSIS. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, and I'm really delighted to see so many young people here uh, interested in agriculture. So I hope we can inspire you a little bit uh, to stay in this field. Let me introduce our panelists, and then we'll go right into our conversation. Um, Julie Howard is a senior advisor and associate provost and dean for international studies and programs at the Michigan State University. She is responsible for advancing their international strategy and developing external partnerships, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. She was also USAID's chief scientist in the Bureau of Food Security and a senior advisor there. And prior to that, Julie led for many years the Partnership to Cut Hunger and Poverty in Africa, a Washington, D.C.-based advocacy group that had a lot to do with the creation of Feed the Future. So delighted to have her. Um, we also have, I'm going to try to do this in order here, James, I'm going to massacre your last name. How do you say it? James. <laughs> James K. Uh, James Kay. He's an award-winning Ugandan business entrepreneur, and he leads a firm called Agricultural 
Solutions for Africa, RASA, which works in the coffee supply chain uh, and also another supply chain, which he'll talk about in a little bit. Um, Next to him is Innocent, Innocent Jumbe, we call him Eno for short, from Malawi, and he is involved in a project funded by Feed the Future called the Malawi Improved Seed System and Technologies Project, the MIST project. And finally, we have Samuel Karyaf, who is from Liberia, and he serves as the executive director of the Liberian Innovation Foundation for Empowerment Life, an organization that utilizes integrated community development activities and empowerment tools. So we're gonna particularly focus in on this panel on the multiplier effects of youth agribusiness and how that can employ more and more young people in Africa. Okay, so Julie, um, starting with you, maybe you can give us the big picture here. As you've just, I think, recently published some work on youth employment in Africa in agriculture. So give us a sense of kind of some of the demographics, some of the trends in this space. Sure, thanks, thanks very much, Ritu. Um, and I just wanna say a big thank you to, to CSIS for having these outstanding young people uh, here and, and around Washington. Uh, I think as, as I've said on many occasions to Kimberly, I think that this, this is a, a really underappreciated uh, issue so far in Washington and by USAID and State Department. Um, I think it's particularly important for CSIS to be in this space because uh, engaging youth in agriculture and agri-food systems is not only important to develop agriculture and food systems, but it's also increasingly an issue of national and global security. So um, I just came from Nigeria, where I think there's a, a really present reminder of what, what happens you know, when you don't create alternative economic opportunities for youth. So folks there are very, very focused on, on what's happening in the northeast part of the country, and, and particularly the, the attraction of youth to groups like Boko Haram and stability. So um, continuing on the, the, the big picture front, we know that 60% of, of Africa's unemployed are youth, uh, and across 32 countries in sub-Saharan Africa, people in Africa regard unemployment as their top priority. So, um, Michigan State, uh, just a, a small word on, on our work. We're expanding work in this area, our work, uh, and thank you to, to MasterCard Foundation for, for supporting this area. Uh, again, for these reasons of not only developing agricultural systems, but really the need to, to provide alternative economic opportunities for, for youth for, for stability purposes. Uh, my colleagues, David Shirley, Tom Jane, Amy Jamison, and Andrea Allen, we're just about to release uh, a paper, research that we've been doing over the past six months, supported by MasterCard. I just want to highlight four, four key results uh, from that work. And um, the first result is that, not a big surprise, I mean, we're seeing very rapid economic transformation across many countries of sub-Saharan Africa. And we're seeing labor moving very sharply out of farming, um, and, but there are a couple of implications there. You know, first is that uh, we still have, we have about half or more than half of young people and labor in particular um, living in and working in rural areas of sub-Saharan Africa. That means that even though uh, labor is shifting out of, of farming and agriculture, you still have a large block of people in rural areas. And so 
agriculture and farming is going to remain the, the largest absolute employer for some time to come. So it's very important to pay attention to it, even as we're seeing economies sort of rapidly, rapidly urbanize. So a couple of things, and really this, this plays to, to some of the comments made uh, in the, the earlier panel. So people think of agriculture, and when you talk to youth and you talk to people, they think of on-farm agriculture. But really the opportunities for agricultural development in the agri-food system are much, much broader. Uh, and so there's, there's, there's sort of a, a, a perception problem, as we started to talk about in the earlier panel. Uh, with urbanization, we're seeing dramatic increases in consumption of processed foods, in marketing foods, in all kinds of things, in packaging, uh, in supermarkets. So there's an opportunity you know, in this whole space uh, before the farm, for example, supplying uh, inputs, figuring out how to make drones work uh, for, for agriculture, drip irrigation and all that, services, but also off the farm in terms of getting, getting um, products to consumers and increasing the value added. So, um, so that's, the, that's one of the big pictures. And we, we talked a little bit about this lack of perception. You know, when you talk to youth, they say, oh, agriculture. No, I definitely don't want to do that. You know, I think of hand hose, I think of drudgery, I think of, you know, that's not going to make any money, I don't want to do that. So some of the things that Trent was talking about and colleagues about how you open people's minds, you know, through ICT, through television, through YouTube, um, how do you open people's minds to these opportunities? A um, couple of other points. Uh, we're seeing there are these opportunities. Uh, there's exciting technologies that can be used by young farmers, drip irrigation, uh, smart packaging, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a huge skills gap between the skills that youth have right now coming out of primary or secondary school or youth who are out of school entirely and what's needed. So, so they don't know about drip irrigation. They, they don't know about smarter agricultural production techniques. Uh, they don't know about marketing. They don't really know about entrepreneurship. So big gap uh, between what's needed and what youth have. Uh, and then I think very much speaking to, to the, the mentorship and follow-up issue that we were discussing in the previous program, there are skills programs already existing, but they tend not to really involve the private sector. Uh, so the skills may not speak, do not speak, private sector says, to what they need. They, and and uh, they also don't link well afterwards to programs that, that provide access to finance or provide access to land or to, to equipment. And I think, um, as Nome was saying before, this whole issue of how do you mentor people? How do you follow up? How do you not just dump people on the job market and say, here's your certificate and good luck? Um, but you almost think of it as, you know, how do you bring people into, into associations as junior, junior members, uh, rotary clubs, you know, to help nurture, nurture people along. So. Great. Thank you. So, James, please introduce your business. And in doing that, talk about how you have generated employment for other young people. Thank you. Um, I run an agribusiness. We are involved in alternative coffee value addition. Uganda is one of the leading producers in coffee in Africa, about 3 million bags annually, or even more, but only less than 10% of that is consumed locally. The only alternative is for international markets. Um, this is good, it's a ready market, but it's not very high value. The farmer does not make even a dollar from that coffee most times. 
and I do not know. Um, I've been to some coffee places, Starbucks, and wow, I'm in shock. Um, so uh, we have a coffee drive in Uganda to try and promote local consumption of coffee uh, by adding value. This is going to help us not only create jobs in the middle, because if I have, I have a company that I started with four people, but now we are a team of 16. Those are already 12 jobs created in just three years. So we're trying to promote such initiatives, have people involved in, the, in coffee value addition, have people start up coffee shops, have people um, do input provision, have people do weight processing, have processing facilities, and they can make some money of it. And yeah, we can have the past glory of the coffee sector in Uganda. Get back because I know you have riches of information. So you know, if you might do the same, introduce your 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 companies and what you're up to. Um, as highlighted, uh, my name is Innocent. Uh, back in Malawi, we've had a couple of uh, negative, very negative uh, effects of climate change. One of which, the biggest, is uh, uh, rain rainfall pattern, which is really erratic. We have had a huge drop right since 1990 up to now. It's like the graph has been going low and low and low. And the last two years have been very, very worse. Mainly this year, uh, after impacting on the Eonino, it's been very, very bad. At the moment, we have about 50% uh, of the population. It's already food insecure. The government is trying to implement ways of subsidizing on that by uh, contracting large-scale farmers to you know, actually go into winter production of crops. We, the funny thing is that we have a lot of water in Malawi, but it's like uh, maybe lack of civic education. People don't really go for winter production. That's one drive that is really making us uh, uh, you know, food insecure. Going back to my enterprise, I run a family-owned enterprise called Peacock Seeds. We don't produce peacocks. What we produce is uh, maize that is drought tolerant. It has high water use efficiency, uh, high yield potential. Actually, it's performing very well in Malawi. For the last two, three years, uptake of our product has been rapid because uh, farmers really like what we produce. It has uh, attributes of the local maize, uh, which farmers actually go for. You look at the poundability, you look at the kernel shape, kernel size. So those are the things that the farmers really want is what we put in our maize, just an, uh, an extra combination of drought tolerance and disease resistance. We also produce groundnuts, legumes, and uh, pigeon peas together with cow peas. So all these things that we, we, we try to do, I personally try to involve the youth in my country on both sides of the sector in production of these seeds uh, through the certification process with the government, as well as involving the, small, uh, the youth and smallholder farmers in buying these seeds and producing them and uh, actually using them to have food security in, uh, as an overall objective, as well as economic empowerment. But I'll tell you that for the youth in my country, they are gonna come to you and tell you that no, we need financing, we need land, we need market. So there are a couple of issues that the youth can actually bring out to the open when you talk to them. But one thing that I noticed is that financing is not the, the, the high limitation for, for the youth in Malawi. The highest limitation that we have is mainly uh, market. We can produce anything. We had a president, uh, Hastings Kamozobanda, he used to say, uh, money is in the ground. 
money is not in technology. That's what he believed, because I believe in their era, technology was not uh, one of the drives into anything. So he believed that agriculture is the only way that Malawi can uh, actually move forward. At the moment, Malawi still has 70% of the GDP coming from agriculture. So we have the youth who are not engaged in agriculture, but the old. So you can see where we are going, that most of the money comes from agriculture, but the youth are not involved. So what is going to happen when this generation goes? It means everything is going to go south. So I try uh, through whatever networks I am in, which includes the Southern African Confederation of Agriculture Unions, to involve the youth in agriculture, right from the grassroots level all the way to uh, value chain addition until the, whatever agriculture produce gets to uh, the plate of a consumer. In brief, I could say that's my enterprise. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Good morning to all. Um, in the first place, I want to use this medium to say thank you to you for taking up your precious time to be here. I always told people that um, what makes America rich is time. So that is the resource you decided to uh, use today to listen to us. Again, I run a local NGO called the Liberia Innovation Foundation for Empowerment Life. And we are involved in integrated community development activities and empowerment interventions. We basically focus on three key areas, agribusiness, microfinance, and small, middle enterprise development, social mobilization, and community development. We believe that agriculture has the greatest potential to lift rural, economy, rural communities out of poverty but there are still formidable obstacles that are standing tall in the way. Um, from the days of our, our forefathers, our people have been farming. Over 60% of our GDP uh, comes from agriculture, but it is unacceptable to note that farmers in my country are considered poor people. On the reverse in the US, when you say farmers, they are considered rich people. We believe that our story needs to change. I actually come from a farming background. Uh, my grandparents were farmers, but now my parents are no longer farmers. There is a huge gap that we need to bridge. Young people in my country do not understand that agriculture has a potential to create wealth. They see agriculture as an obscure, unacceptable, and uh, bad practice, they think that if they go into agriculture, they wouldn't make money. So my organization, the Liberia Innovation Foundation for Empowerment, is doing a whole wide range of works, integrating young people into understanding agriculture and business. The reason why our people are so poor is because they depend solely on subsistence farming. They farm and they only feed the family and sell a little. So we are now coming in with a whole wide range of business skills, developing um, their capacity and giving them the needed skills that they would, they, they would be able to connect to the market. They will be able to add value to the commodity that they produce so as to create wealth and build the rural economies. We focus principally on TDQ uh, issues. We want the farmers to have food security. We also want the farmers to have economic efficiency and we want social equity. The government 
uh, even our Christmas during December month, the government spends millions of dollars on buying rice from China, from India, from Thailand to give it as Christmas food for government employees. We believe that with the kind of soil that we have, it is imperative that we embark upon uh, robust actions that will enable us to become food secured. I come from a country that has over 20 natural resources. I always told people we don't even need to start mining our goals now. We don't need to start mining our diamonds now. Maybe we can reserve them for future generations. We need to get back upon agriculture. Agriculture can make us rich. We have the quality of soil. We have the natural vegetation. We, have, we are a country of 4.2 million people. We have over six major rivers. I'm not talking about smaller ones. We have over six major rivers. So anything that has to do with water availability or irrigation systems, we can be very, very rich just from agriculture. My organization, the Liberian Innovation Foundation for Empowerment, has been empowering communities up to date. We've been able to support over 2,300 farmers. We have projected to be able to empower 10,000 smallholder farmers by the year 2026. And we hope that we can be able to cover the 15 counties of our country. Because we believe that when farmers are empowered, when they understand how to add value to the crops that they produce and how to connect to the market, their livelihood will improve. They will also contribute to the economy at large. Thank you. Great. Thank you. I could listen to all of you all day long, which is it's such a treat to have you here. One of the things we're talking about in, in attracting youth to agriculture is off-farm, right? It's the value addition, it's the um, preservation, it's selling up the chain, it's technology, it's all of that that we're really talking about that can get youth engaged in agriculture. But someone has to be on the farm actually growing the food or the product. And how do you see that trend developing? Is it, is it going to fall to those in the family that are the least well-educated or have the least opportunities? They end up staying on the farm. Is it that we're going to have uh, business people coming in and buying all the small plots of land and turning these areas into sort of commercialized agriculture and, and families become day wage laborers? How, how do you see the trend flowing in terms of what actually happens on the land itself. So any, any one of you, do you want to start, Julie? Sure. sure. Yeah. Thanks. I think that's a, that's a great question, but, but I, I also think this is an area of tremendous opportunity for, for youth, and it all comes in, again, how are we portraying the opportunities on farm? You know, the opportunities for technological advance and especially connect that to, to making money. So I, I was talking to someone in, in Tanzania, the, the, the head of the Tanzania Horticulture Association, and I said, you know, what's the secret you know, to getting youth in, interested in, in agriculture on farm, you know, not just off farm? And she said, money mm -hmm. uh, and technology, and you have to keep changing things up all the time, right? And, and the good news is that we, 
we have opportunities to do that. So if you think about drip irrigation, you think about using uh, greenhouses, you know, for, for nurturing seedlings, for, for horticulture, you think about new drying and preservation techniques, you think about um, rapid ways of, of uh, raising poultry and, and, uh, and, and other protein sources, fish, for example. So there's a lot of opportunities on farms. Well, I mean, basically to, to change up what we're doing, uh, use technology. You know, people are learning, and people are like in Tanzania are whipping out their 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 phones and showing me um, videos of, of drones that are being converted to on-farm sprayers and saying, "This is how we're learning." You know, we're not just relying on our agricultural extension agents. So I think it's that same process. I mean, it can be sexy. It can be, you know, even more important, uh, profitable. But I think a lot of it is going to, to, to rest on the shoulders of, of these folks who are here with us today and other really important role models you know, back home. Because I think it's not for you know, us old people, not you, Vita, but okay, you know, to say this is what you should be doing, but you, know, you guys who are actually, and you girls, who, you know, who are demonstrating this is the way forward, you can make a living at this, it's very interesting, this is not your, your grandmother's or your grandfather's agriculture anymore. I could talk about value addition the whole day because I've been in value addition. Mm -hmm. But um, I think for value addition, for it to take, to take up properly, you've talked about uh, land issues. Uh, we have to accept the fact that we are in Africa, uh, in Uganda, over 70% are smallholder farmers. And we have to learn how to work with that. So for example, I'm going to talk about coffee because I've been involved with coffee. One of the things we're trying to promote under the coffee policy with USAID is the implementation of the coffee policy, which promotes the farmer ownership model. The farmers actually need to own their own processing plants because it may not be very profitable for an organization to say, let's come and do this. I'm going to go to her. I'm sorry about that. I've heard about that fruit plant, and I've heard it's a bit redundant. Um, one of the things is reasons it's redundant is that we do not have that many mangoes. One of the Kenyan factories that was employing over a thousand people and producing mangoes just closed shop in Uganda and went back home. Yeah, so I'm um, digressing a little bit, but um, the value addition needs to be, the farmers also have to do some value addition. So when I come as an agent, for example, to pick coffee, I need to find it at least processed to a certain level, then I can take it to a roaster, which is maybe expensive. Then the other thing about value addition is that it has to be demand driven there has to be demand at the end. It is one thing to produce dry mangoes and everything, but I'm going to tell you the truth, in Uganda, no one is going to buy dry mangoes. They're just not going to what? To do it. I, in my home, I live on less than a quarter an acre, my family home, and we have two mango trees. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason I need to buy dry mangoes. So you could, you could say I'm adding value, but there's no demand and there's no profit from it, so it is not helping anyone. Yes, so we need to focus on um, demand-driven alternatives. The juice is going to work very well. Um, my coffee is working very well. So <laughs> but yeah, it needs to have a demand side to it. Someone needs to be paying for it so that it can be sustainable and profitable to the entrepreneur. Thank you. Uh, I want to talk about uh, maybe three or four dimensions that I look at uh, uh, how we can engage more youth into, into agriculture. I'm looking at a person's background. For instance, I come from a farming family. It's been there for generations. It's just a matter of diversifying. My grandfather did livestock. My father was also into livestock. I'm doing maize, so we, we, we alternate. 
But uh, what I'm trying to say is that uh, for most African families, uh, the parents don't really show their youth that agriculture is a business. We look at agriculture as a survival instinct. They only go to the farm in November. By June, they are done. They don't give a damn. They're going to wait for November to go and plant a small piece of land. But I've been, I've been told that agriculture is a business. I've been, I've been shown the finances that go on. You know, you, you look at the investment that you need to put in. You look at the time frame for, uh, for you to get your harvest, what you have to do in the process. All that chain, it actually opened up my mind to say, you know what, this is a business that somebody can embark on. So looking at background, most of the youth don't have that in them to say agriculture is a business. In addition to that, exposure. If, even if they are not from a farming family, but they can be uh, ways that we can expose the youth uh, to, to actually uh, innovative ways of agriculture. Myself, I always give a testimony of myself. When I, used, when I was growing up, what I knew was that a tractor can only handle a four-disc uh, planter or something that can only manage four rows until I went to South Africa and see a 64-row planter. That, to me, was a drive to say, okay, now this is agriculture beyond what I know. That set me a milestone to say I can move and do that. But for me to have that, I don't need one acre of land. I need a large piece of land. Then it's up to me to go back home and look to my government and say, you know what, I have this business venture. I find myself partners. I can involve a lot of people coming in that I should go to my objective. One other problem that the youth have that makes me different from them is patience. The youth today want money today. If they're investing in a business, they want to get money in the soonest time possible, even if it is 24 hours. That's it. That, to them, that is a goal. So they don't have the patience to say, okay, I can buy 200 head of cattle today. I'll nurture them for two years. Then I can be able to get my profit. That time itself, to them, it is time wasted. Indeed, it becomes expensive. You have to put in a lot. But the profit component of it is a lot. So we look at those type of things. Then on the other hand, I wanted to talk about a market drive. As I mentioned earlier, and as he said, uh, he, he introduced it, what we need is across the value chain, we need to have a drive. There should be something that is going to pull everybody. In secondary school, we learned about force, and then there was the pushing force and the pulling force. And we all know that the pulling force is one that wins than the pushing force. Because if you're having a pushing force, you actually put in your back into it, you won't get the uh, impact that you want. But if you have a pulling force, it is much easier. So we should just try to create a vacuum, that, a vacuum and, and uh, highlight the opportunity to the youth to say, there is this opportunity here. What are you going to do about it? We shouldn't tell them to say, uh, Nora, can you do this? Because she's not going to do that. That is not her drive. Just give her an environment where she would say, OK, that is something that I can do. Uh, you expose her to how she can get to that, and then actually they can uh, go into it. Thank you. Great, thank you. Samuel, you work directly with farmers in your program, and how do you see, are there, is there a generation that will take on doing the actual farming? I'm sorry, I have a huge fear, and that fear is after our forefathers, after, like my grandparents, my parents are no longer farming. My father is an insurance uh, expert. And so all of my siblings, we are all like okay, in the city and, and 
people are pursuing different careers. So there is a whole generational gap. And I would tell you, the issue of land for farming in Liberia is now, there is no uh, need to maybe fight for land or farm. I come from a family that owns over 6,000 acres of land because this is the way it works in Liberia. There are customary lands. There are sectional lands. Which are, these lands are passed on from one generation to another. So that is how we inherited it. So we, what we need to do is to facilitate uh, access to information knowledge or education on agriculture. Let the young people know that agriculture is important and that it, it can be a, a source of wealth for any group of people. Every year we see lots of young people migrating from the rural parts of the country to the urban parts. One thing that we also need to do is to decentralize our development agenda. Most of the economic activities are within the urban areas or the peri-urban areas. Who doesn't want to go to a shopping mall? I don't think there is anyone here who doesn't want to go to the shopping mall. Everybody wants to live in a good place. So the best thing we can do is to decentralize development. Take the agricultural college from Monrovia, take it to Bikina. Take the CARI, uh, uh, which is a Central Agricultural Research Institute, take it from Banga, and take it to Swakoko. From Banga to Swakoko, let us decentralize our institutions. Then you get people attracted to the places that are agri centered. When you do this thing, you're going to be motivating a lot of young people. Another thing we need to do is Within our institutions of higher learning, there is a serious need to develop strong and effective policies that will see young people uh, are integrated within the, our learning institutions, especially on agriculture. One key step that our government has taken that really makes me happy is that they've made the agriculture college free of charge. So you can go there, you can pursue a degree in agriculture. Another thing is they are giving a lot of scholarships for young people to travel to China, to travel to India and other countries to do masters in agriculture, to do first degree in agriculture. We think that these steps are much more important. Another thing we need to do to attract a lot of young people is we need to start from the the elementary level in schools. We need to, to focus on elementary. We need to focus on junior high. And when we start to teach young people to understand how to grow crops from the maybe six or eight or 10 up to 18, they will actually develop interest. I can tell you, when I was in Wisconsin, this really got me fascinated. I saw a lot of kids planting tomatoes and planting other crops. And they took us to gardens. We went to, I went to over 25 gardens in Wisconsin. And a lot of families were saying, come and see my garden. Come and see our farm. And I saw the kids along with the parents working, growing, weeding, and so forth. 
But that is not the case in our country. Nobody wants to paint. Everybody wants to eat. So where does the food come from? So because agriculture is not seen as anything attractive, everybody wants to enter into government and get rich very quick. That is how it works. So the best way we can bridge this gap is an integrated approach of the international partners, the government, and all of the stakeholders being involved. Because if it doesn't happen now, remember around 800 more million people plus people go to bear hungry. If it doesn't happen now, it will get worse tomorrow. So we need to start now. Well said. Well said. So let's open it up to some questions and conversation before we wrap it up. We'll take uh, two or three questions at a time. Any questions? Yes, please, on the aisle there. Please use the microphone if you don't mind so that our webcasting. Hi, Karen Edwards with the World Initiative for Soy and Human Health, and I appreciated the comments on what the government of Liberia was doing. I wondered if all of our panelists could talk about what government policies are most helpful that you're seeing or would be helpful in your countries to draw youth into the agriculture sector. Morning. My name is Beth Ann Siraco with World Vision. Um, just kind of curious on the topic of gender and um, just the sheer fact with nearly half of smallholder farmers being women um, and thinking about adolescence and education, to what degree are we talking to girls specifically about agriculture and also even the value chain, the, the added value in the processing, whether it's juices, whether it's um, off-farm activities. Let me take the one of the government initiatives. Our governments, let me just say they like a little push. Before I even joined coffee, uh, the people who are in coffee were pushing for the coffee policy for about, I don't know how many years. When the USAID came in and decided to support it, well, it's now in the parliament. So if, <laughs> if more development partners come and intervene with our policies, they are going to get implemented. However, the governments are still doing some things, is what we call Operation Wealth Creation in Uganda that is mainly meant to streamline youth in agriculture and agribusiness, and they give out small loans and small grants to youth in business. So the governments are doing something, but um, I think if the development partners um, look at youth, uh, mainstreaming the youth in agribusiness as a policy, then the governments will also take it up and want to work with it. In regards to gender, uh, back home, um, gender is a big issue, um, mainly in regards to coffee. In some rural regions in Uganda, the women are not allowed to own coffee trees because it was a prestigious crop. And yet research shows that the women are more effective and produce better results. So one of the things that, uh, one of the components of the, of the coffee policy is gender and uh, women and youth involvement. and. As someone said, it shouldn't just be a component. It should be one of the main issues, and those are some of the things we are lobbying for. Yeah, thank you. Samuel, did you want to go after Jill? Yeah. Okay. And, no. Okay. Great. 
Thanks, really good questions. Um, I, I just want to also second the focus on, on land. Land is a big constraint for, for, for women in particular. Uh, we, we visited a, a, an agro-processing facility in, in Tanzania, which was staffed entirely by women. So that's great. I mean, there are lots of opportunities for, for women in drawing and sorting and all of that. But I'm just asking, so why, why only women here? Well, because they have no access to land, and this is their opportunity. They need to earn money. So. So anyway, so I, I think across the board in the countries that we've looked at, sort of really what are the obstacles for women uh, owning land and, and gaining uh, access to, to other assets. I wanted to say uh, one more thing about what government can do. When we were in Nigeria recently, really noting the impact of the, the, the government policy that all flour, all, all flowers and cakes and pastries must have at least 10% cassava flour content. So as a way of stimulating demand for, for a local product. And that is transformative, really, because uh, Nigerians, as I learned, eat, eat lots of bread and lots of pastries, but it all has this cassava flour, and as a result, uh, the, the supermarkets, the, the flour factories, processors are, are actively looking for more cassava, you know, and that's, that's a really, really live option for, for youth, right? Getting into cassava business, getting into to processing. But I think, you know, what, one thing that's really changed as a result of, of our work uh, over the past six months is thinking, you know, it's, it is government policy. Government has a, a big role to play in sort of finance policies and coordinating skill in finance, but really looking for ways to integrate private sector, uh, in, uh, inviting them to the table, inviting them to the table to inform curriculum development, to you know really think purposefully and engage them in opportunities to, well, how would, would you be interested in, in providing uh, internships? Uh, what, what pathway can you provide for youth to be employed in your factory? Or can we set up some sort of system for you, supermarket, where you, 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 you source a number of your products from youth groups and you, you advertise that as a marketing strategy? So I think those kind of opportunities are there. The private sector uh, representatives that we talk to in the country is very interested in that, but no one's really pulling that together yet. Uh, just to respond to our question, on government policies that can actually draw uh, youth into agriculture back in Malawi, uh, the government doesn't really have that much interest in, in specifically saying this, these are policies that are driven towards the youth. They just have policies in agriculture, so that's uh, covering the whole wide scale, not specifically narrowing down into the youth. But I can assure you that in the seed industry, under the Seed Traders Association of Malawi, the youth component, we usually meet uh, once in a while, informally, and we actually talked, about, uh, talked among ourselves and we agreed that, you know, we should not wait for the government to have a policy to drive youth into agriculture. As, as the youth in my network that I have, we pioneer employment of youth into agriculture. So now we give them a platform. Like myself in my enterprise, uh, from January to now, I've employed about four youth, some doing monitoring and evaluation, some have put down at the farm. So that's just now the youth, we, we drove our own initiative to say, let's not wait for the government. Let's bring in as many youth as we can. We see how that works. If it doesn't work, then maybe we can go and lobby uh, for the government to actually intervene. But for now, this, I think it's actually working. Uh, we organize ourselves, we bring in the youth, or under the, some of the unions that we have, we actually pull in the youth that we can bring up together. We get somebody to mentor them, 
to inspire them. Uh, we once invited one of the very wealthy farmers from Malawi to talk to the youth, not as, as him being a millionaire, but as him and how he started to be a farmer. So those are the initiatives that we as the youth are actually uh, bringing on board. Uh, I can talk about bank loans, which is around 46% interest when you, want to, when you want to get a loan from a bank in Malawi. No youth wants to do that. So we have informal uh, bank systems that actually we, we, we try to help the youth to access these and, and get financing. Like for myself, one thing that I do a lot is to actually uh, testify for the youth to a bank. If, if they still insist on going to a bank, I can also talk to the bank and say, this is one of my growers. If you feel that it's right, give them a grant, I'll be their surety. Anything goes wrong, you come to me. So actually that is working for me back in Malawi. Talking about gender, on one component that I can control in contract farming with smallholder farmers, I have 1,300 farmers, of which 52% is actually uh, women. The other 48%, I share that between the men and the youth. Uh, then I come to going directly to the, to the beneficiaries of, of, of Feed the Future on the output part. I have, uh, as, as a survey that I did in March, I was able to reach out to 30% of the total number of beneficiaries being actually uh, women. So I'm trying to, we, we are trying to factor in gender when it comes to uh, Malawi. And uh, if I may, Ritu, I just want to share two small stories of myself. Back when I was a kid, in Malawi we make these toy cars using soft and hard wires. You actually look at a car that you like, then you, you get the hardware, you, you design the framing, you get the software, and you connect those, and I was very bad at that. Then uh, one day my dad came to me and said, you know what, this is not your thing. Try and do something that is your thing, you know? But now, now that I'm a grown-up, and I talked to him about this, we went to the farm this one day, and the tractor had a problem, and I sat there looking at it, I was able to figure out the problem, despite that I couldn't build my own cars, but I looked at that tractor and I saw the, what the problem was. Then he said to me, you know what, son, in agriculture, a farmer is the best of everything. He is the best engineer, he is the best mechanic, he is the best banker because he, he can handle his finances, he is the best, uh, uh, you, you talk about best weather person. They simply look up in the sky and they can tell you that, okay, fine, uh, from the cloud movement, from that, Rain is going to come in this particular time. There will be drought in this season. So when you engage yourself in agriculture, you know, you actually have a wide scope of everything. You don't have to say, I am a banker. Because if you say you're a banker, you end with banking. But if you say you're a farmer, you actually have expertise in every field that is there out there. And one thing that really got my eye is how I read on the internet to say, a farmer can be the best psychologist. <laughs> because uh, you look at the milk production, if you subject cattle to listen to classic music while you milk them, the production actually goes high. So you see, things like that, they, they, that's just the reality about agriculture. So maybe we can try to involve the youth that whatever field they're trying, whatever field that they want, they can actually draw that into agriculture. If they feel they're technology uh, oriented, bring them into agricultural technology. If they feel they're medical, bring them into agricultural medicine. Thank you. Love that story. So, uh, Samuel, please. Okay. So, let me just go to the second uh, question before coming to the, the, the first one. one. One good thing we've done 
over the period of our works as an organization is to be gender sensitive, to focus on both men and women um, as our project beneficiaries. When you talk about farming in my country, the key co custodian of farming are women. And I can tell you this. The role the men play in farming in Liberia is to do the clearing. Clear the site, and then the woman does the rest. She plants, she does the weeding, she takes care of the crops, she does the harvesting. So to be quite frank, when I grew up with my grandparents and I saw that my grandfather would, would clear and then my grandmother would have to do all of these works. Those were some of, those, some of the things that inspired me. I mean, so it means that women can become better managers of agriculture. They can become better managers in the area of food security. And so what we've focused on has been educating women on adding value to their crops. Another thing we've done is clustering them into cooperatives. The best way that women can be stronger against the men is if they work together. And I can tell you this. We've done it for some time and it's worked. When we started clustering women from our goat cooperatives, our goat strain project into a group of 25 uh, across districts, we saw that the women were really, really committed to this uh, cooperative, to, to working together. And understanding that they needed to not grow only the goats, but they also needed to, to focus on adding value to the goat. And so it really worked for us. Today, I can tell you for sure that a lot of women in district number one and district number two in Grand Bansal have improved greatly. Economically, they've improved. They are now able to, uh, to get money and support their family. Whereas before then, they were waiting for the men to come in with their money. And they were like sitting on, I would consider a gold deposit because the man only does the slashing or clearing and he's gone. So you manage a farm and then you do everything, you turn it over to the man. But now they understand, we, we've taught them how to manage a farm and how to be able to save. And that is why we've all also combined microfinance and small middle enterprise development with our agribusiness works so that the women will farm, they will be able to save, they will be able to, to invest and reinvest. Uh, let me go to the second question on the issue of policy. Sam, you'll have to make the that point one. short. Yeah, very short. Okay, on the issue of policy, there are stop parts of policies back home, but our problem is the implementation. What we need to do to integrate young people into agriculture is to, to kind of motivate them to take up agriculture or agribusiness is giving subsidy to young farmers, giving subsidy to young people with organizations that are focused on supporting farmers. Thank you. So please join me in thanking our panel this morning. Excellent. Excellent. So we're all going to go back down.
We have a really uh, nice treat for you now. We're really delighted to have Sahara Moon Chaboten with us from USAID's Bureau of Food Security, where she is the deputy assistant to the administrator. And she's done a number of things at USAID, including overseeing the Feed the Future research strategy, and originally was there as a AAAS science and technology fellow. And we just learned in our green room that her doctoral research was on the baobab tree, which is fascinating. So you have to tell us something interesting about the baobab tree. Thank you. Thanks, Ridu. And um, thank you first, of course, to CSIS for having us here and for organizing this event and for giving us all a chance to hear firsthand from youth working in agriculture, but not just working in agriculture, also building the agriculture sector. And that, that's very exciting. Um, on baobab trees, I'll just say they're the awesomest tree in the world. And you can grow them here in DC if you keep them in your apartment. They have wonderful little bonsais. So that's the, the cool factoid I'll share with you if you can find a seed. Um, so uh, to all the fellows, uh, your stories were amazingly inspiring. That was so amazing for me to hear how you are working, and it makes me so proud to know that in some small way, Feed the Future is supporting your efforts and your activities. I think as today's discussion made clear, youth are critical to the future of agriculture and of course are critical to the success of Feed the Future's efforts around the world. Youth bring the kind of innovation, the energy, the enthusiasm that we saw today and, and they're bringing this to the agriculture space and in doing so they're bringing transformative solutions to many of our biggest problems. We heard so many great stories today. I'd like to share with you just one more example of how engaging youth can really have an outsized impact in agriculture. In 2014, Feed the Future hosted a conference in Uganda on youth and agriculture. During this event, five entrepreneurs met and they decided to join their ICT companies together to launch a new venture that they decided to call Akorian, which means farmers in a local Ugandan language. Through Aquarian, they launched a new enterprise that aims to provide up-to-date agricultural information and best practices via mobile technology to farmers in Uganda. So using a smartphone, an Aquarian village agent will collect a farmer's records, their bio, their demographic data, their production data, what kinds of inputs they, they have and need, what their product supply is. They'll map the cultivated land using GPS and they'll create a profile for that farm. The farmer can take that profile to a bank and use that as a basis for getting credit. So this, this right there is a very transformative way to, to to, to impact that farmer's ability to invest in, in, in his or her own farm. The village agents from Corian are also using their smartphone to provide extension services to farmers on topics such as better agronomic practices, weather forecasts, market prices. They're also providing digital financial services such as savings, transactions, and credit and crop insurance to help farmers improve their own yields. Um, additionally, in partnership with some Feed the Future funded programs in Uganda, Akorian is helping to employ thousands of youth 
in services like digital profiling and management, some of what I just described um, that these agents are doing, uh, collecting soil samples and analysis, ordering and delivering of agri-inputs, plowing, mobile money services, the list goes on and on. So if you think about this, just through one small youth-led enterprise that really came out of bringing youth together and giving them a forum to, to meet each other and connect, many, many more farms in Uganda are growing through this injection of capital, Guilds are improving because of access to the latest best practices, and thousands of youth are joining the agricultural workforce. This really, this, and, and I think even more so the stories we heard today, are what the future of youth-led agriculture in Africa and around the world can look like. We, I think it's clear, youth entrepreneurs are key to the growth and sustainability of Africa's agricultural sector, and Feed the Future is committed to continuing and growing our work with youth. Going forward, um, we are we're, we're looking at a lot of things across Feed the Future as obviously we're, we're heading in, into a transition. We're thinking how can we continue to grow, learn from, from our experience in the last years and really continue to make Feed the Future the program that will continue to generate the impacts around the world that we need to see. So we're considering how can we improve and expand our youth targeted programming and we're looking at new ways to expand funding which would really help to catalyze youth-led businesses. So the recommendations that, that you all have made here today in meeting with us yesterday at USAID and in meeting with policymakers around town this week, your recommendations will be so very valuable to us and we are certainly taking them into consideration. And so on that, I'd like to thank you for taking the time away from your businesses, away from your organizations, to come here to Washington and to meet with us and to share your valuable expertise. I'm particularly excited to see where each of you will go in your lives and with your enterprises. I hope you will check back in and share your stories with us. And I'm excited to see the impact that you will continue to have in your homes. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sahara Moon, for your leadership as well as USAID's continued engagement and for listening to us. Um, I'll just make a very brief statement as in closing is, you know, one thing that Julie mentioned, I think, in her opening remarks on the panel is that this has been an underappreciated issue. Um, and it certainly has, but I can say this week in DC, it's been the opposite. It's been very appreciated across the board as we've had these phenomenal fellows, as you can tell, but really, um, again, engaging with policymakers. So you, you see the handout that we gave you with our recommendations and um, know that policymakers are listening to that, as, as Sahara Moon mentioned, and that's that's the point. So just thank you all for coming. Um, I liked uh, Samuel's point of time is so valuable, and we recognize that. So thank you for your time, and just one more round of applause for our fellows. Feel free. We have about 15 or 20 minutes in our schedule. If any of you want to come up and talk to the fellows, now's a good time.